a beautiful prayer, and it also encourages me and challenges me on the job that I have to do to serve you well today, and it's to point you to Christ. And so that's our biggest prayer. My biggest prayer today is that by the time we walk out of this building today, that our understanding and our treasuring of Christ is deeper than when we walked in. So I appreciate your prayers as, as we do this uh, right now. So let me read. Thank you for remaining standing. I'm going to read from our text today. Matthew 24, verses 4 through 14. Matthew 24, verses 4 through 14. We're in the midst of the Olivet Discourse, kind of towards the beginning of it. We did an introduction last week, and today we'll be reading and studying this passage. Hear the word of the Lord. And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All of these are but the beginning of birth pains. And then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. May the Lord bless the reading of his holy, inspired, and inerrant word. And may he write its truths upon our hearts. Would you join me in prayer once again? Father, as we come to you in worship, holding our Bibles open, keeping our hearts open, we truly want to see Christ. And so I pray, O oh God, that you would use this hour that we are together for our hearts to leap at the glory and the beauty of our Savior. God, I pray you would be with me. It's a difficult passage. And I pray, God, that you would give me grace and humility as I do my best to encourage your people through this text. We ask your blessings upon our time in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please have a seat and pull out. Hopefully you grabbed some, uh, some notes as you came out um, and, and hopefully you got a pen in your hand and take notes. I encourage you to do that. Uh, we started last week this particular text that again is known as the Olivet Discourse and um, we mentioned I talked quite a bit last week about what a challenging passage it is and that for centuries now, well, a couple thousand years, there have been numerous various interpretations of the passage, various differences among different uh, wonderful teachers 
about how to understand what Jesus is saying here, mainly in the timing of the situation. I encourage you to study it deeper. I encourage you to be a Berean and, and dig into the Word of God. I also encourage you to, to read and study the, uh, the, the passages where in the Synoptic Gospels, in Mark chapter 13 and in Luke chapter 21, where this discourse also is mentioned and takes place. So, uh, how we approach it, I mentioned last week, we want to approach it with love and humility. I was encouraged again this week as I read through multiple commentaries all across the board on the subject, and pretty much every one was talking about approaching it with such great humility. One particular was from J.C. Ryle. In his expository thoughts on the Gospels, Ryle writes these words. He says, all portions of scriptures, scripture like this ought to be approached with deep humility and earnest prayer for the teaching of the Spirit. On no point have good men so entirely disagreed as on the interpretation of prophecy. On no point have the prejudices of one class, the dogmatism of a second, and the extravagance of a third done so much to rob the church of truths, which God intended to be a blessing. Well, says Olhausen, quote, what does not man see or fail to see when it serves to establish his own favorite opinions. So I today am going to give you my opinion, and it is my favorite, but I hope you receive it with humility. Again, there are different interpretations of these, the whole, uh, really, of the Olivet Discourse, and there's three primary schools of thought as we approach it. First is this, that everything after verse 3 is in the future, that this is a prophecy that everything after verse 3, so the text we're studying today, would be considered something that is not yet fulfilled. There's other schools of thought that believe that all of it is actually past and was all fulfilled in the past. And then there's a, another school that is, says it's a mixture of both. That, that uh, couple, and then that even breaks apart in verses 4 to 28, some would say is past, already fulfilled, dealing with the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in particular. And then verse 29 on would be into the future, or some that would even say from verse 4 to 35 is dealing with the destruction of the temple, and the rest, verse 36 on, deals with the future second coming. And that actually is my understanding. There's others, actually, that have a, see a double fulfillment in, in the whole of the text, that each of it deals with both of them, and that actually has, uh, makes, certainly makes me think about things. The point I want you to understand as I share this with you this morning is that all views have problems. <laughs> my view has problems I have to deal with. Your view may have problems if you don't agree with my view that you'll have to deal with. As I said, there are disagreements for the past 2,000 years, and there will continue to be until Jesus returns. So how do we handle it? We handle it with love and with humility. And so I'm going to share my understanding of the text from the perspective that I understand it today. And the perspective I'm coming from is that Jesus is answering the first part of the question that was asked back in verse 3. You might remember they asked Jesus, when will these things be? Jesus had already come and told them about the destruction of the temple that was coming. And so he, they, they come and ask him a question that they see as one question, but I believe Jesus answers it in two parts. When will these things be? When is the temple going to be destroyed? 
And again, you may or may not agree with my interpretation, but I'm going to do my best to be humble before a difficult section of Scripture because I could be wrong. And I'm going to ask you, if you don't agree with my interpretation, to be humble before this text of Scripture because you could be wrong. It may lead us to great discussions that may or may not end in agreement, but I hope they would end in a deeper love for our Savior and for one another. Christians don't often know how to disagree well. I hope we can change that. Amen? That we would, in the end, link arms and get to work for the glory of Christ and for the advancement of his gospel. So let's look at the context. I'm going to back up a little bit to Matthew 23. In verse 36, Jesus, having wound up the woes, the curses, if you will, to the Pharisees, the religious leaders, he called them a bunch of hypocrites because they were. And he says in verse 36, Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. That, to me, gives me a clue of the timing of what's coming in far as what he's talking about. Verse 37, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing? See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of of the Lord. We began verse 1 of chapter 24 last week. Let's revisit it again. Then Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. So they're looking at these marvelous structures, this incredible mass, massive architectural wonder that was beautifully built, and they pointed back out to Jesus, and Jesus says something so incredibly important. I don't know if our day and age understands and grasps exactly how deep this would have run into the disciples' minds and hearts, or the, the average Jew of the first century. But in verse 2, he answers them, you see all these, all these buildings, all these stones that are piled on top of each other in this beautiful temple. You see them, don't you? Do you not? Truly, I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. He announces judgment upon the temple upon the city of Jerusalem itself as well. Those beautiful buildings are coming down. And in that response to the disciples pointing out the temples, Jesus is saying something so catastrophic to their minds and understanding. Again, we think about it. If I say, hey, this building's coming down, it's like, well, there's another one. <laughs> the White House is going to get bombed. There's another one. The World Trade Center was, was terror attacked and crumbled before our eyes, the eyes of the world. They rebuilt the to a tower. But understand how, how incredibly important this was for them because there was no other place on earth where you could appropriately worship God, where you could appropriately offer a sacrifice for sins and receive redemption or receive forgiveness. This was the only place. And so for, for the disciples hearing this, these words, they're seeing it as something that this has to be the end of the world. 
It must be. And so they asked him the question in verse 3. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, they came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be? When are these stones going to be not left one upon the other? When is this destruction about to take place? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Now, it's one long sentence and one question mark, but I believe it's two questions that Jesus is is now going to begin to answer. When are these things going to be? What things? The things you just talked about, the the things about the temple coming down. When is that going to be? And then what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? They brought it together. They assumed that the the, the temple destruction equals the end of of all time. The end of the world. This is the last, the last of it. That's it. If there's no temple, how can life go on? And so Jesus answers their two questions, when and what, by explaining that the coming destruction of Jerusalem's sacred hill, sacred temple, is not going to be the end of the world. They thought it was one event. Jesus is teaching it to be two separate events. There's going to be two judgments at two different times in history, both certain, but two different judgments. There's going to be a local judgment in A.D. 70. And then after an unspecified period of time, there's going to be another judgment when Christ comes again. The final time is the judge. And so the key for me in understanding and helping to understand the passage comes in verse 8 where Jesus tells them all of these are but the beginning of birth pains. And so that's what this sermon is titled, Birth Pains. And we've got a lot of babies around now, a lot of pregnant women, so you all understand this. (laughs) I I don't speak from firsthand knowledge, okay, but I've heard it hurts. (laughs) Jesus is using this illustration to help us understand, to help the disciples understand that, that there's a sign. These are some signs that something is coming. Okay, That's what birth pains are, right? When they begin, you know something's coming. What's coming? Well, when it comes to birth, you know here's what's coming, a baby. That's glorious, but what comes before that is suffering. So first comes the suffering, then comes the glory, right? And So I believe the way I can sum up what I believe Jesus is is teaching in this passage is I'm giving you some signs, and I'm going to give you signs for what's going to happen in this generation in the coming 40 years or so. As far as the ultimate coming, the second coming, the parousia, that's coming like a thief in the night. It's going to come sudden and unexpected, and you're not going to know. So so I don't believe the signs he's giving are for that, and I'll do my best to explain it why. And really what I want to mainly focus on, though, because no matter what view you hold, there's some incredible application for all disciples. I want you to see here that not only in this passage, but in all of the future passages, and yet all of Scripture, that whatever Jesus says will happen, happens. (laughs) If he said it, it's happening. Jesus already said in verse 3, the temple's coming down. Not one stone will be left. Guess what happened in AD 70? The temple came down. Jesus says... I'm returning. Guess what's going to happen? He's returning, okay? He's coming back. And so we have great application for trusting what Jesus says. And I want you to also notice throughout this passage how much Jesus loves his people. 
the tender care he has to serve them and to prepare them. And this isn't the only passage he's done that with. In particularly shepherding and caring for the twelve, he's told them repeatedly of the challenges that were coming their way. And I'm so grateful because so often we come to the Christian life, people are introduced to the Christian life in such a way that you come to Jesus and all your problems are fixed. And everything's perfect. And life just has a way of just lining up every way you want it. Is that true? (laughs) That's not true in my life. That's not true in yours. And that's not true biblically. He promised suffering and persecution And that's a part of our lives. Pain is real. Pain is coming. If you don't have it right now, it's coming. I've been reminded of that just physically over the last couple of months. I've had major back problems. And just when I think it gets better and I can actually pick this thing up, it hurts again. (laughs) Now, I'm almost 50, so I'm getting to that age, I think, where I'm not 20 anymore, but I still think I am. And I do these things, right? I played catch a couple months ago with softball with Natalia, and now my elbow has been killing me for two months. I'm falling apart. Pain is real. But even though pain is real, there's some things that disciples of Jesus need to know. And the four things I want you to see this morning is that pain will come, so don't be deceived. Secondly, that pain will come, but don't be afraid. Thirdly, pain will come, so endurance is necessary. And fourthly, that pain will come, but the gospel must be proclaimed. Each of those four points, I'm pulling out of the text here, but I also am using them as points of application for us today. So let's start with point number one. Pain will come, so don't be deceived. Look at verse four. It says, and Jesus answered them, see that no one leads you astray. Again, they had just asked the question. Lord, when when are these things going to be, and what are the signs of your coming and of the end of the age? And he tells them immediately, don't be deceived. That's what that means. See that no one leads you astray. Why, disciples? For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. Those words certainly came true in that early period of the first century. And from between A.D. 33 and A.D. 70, I've read that historians record at least 16 false messiahs that arose to a prominence of of being an issue in, in that part of the world. These guys are guys who stood up and said, I'm the Messiah, I'm here to, to, to throw out the Romans, I'm here to, to, to lead the people to freedom. And so certainly, this warning for them not to trust them. Don't listen to those guys. Why? Because Messiah, you already know. (laughs) You already know the Christ. It's like a banker looking at counterfeit, right? When you learn to be a bank teller, how do you know the truth of the $100 bill? You touch the real thing. You handle the real thing over and over and over again so you know the counterfeit when it comes. He's in essence saying, you've known the real thing. Don't be deceived by those who are false Christs. And yes, this was said to them a long time ago, but let me ask you the question for today. Have they gone away? (laughs) Some of us are old enough to remember Jim Jones, who led hundreds of people to their death 
to their suicide with false teaching, saying that he was a Messiah. You remember David Koresh, who led a whole bunch of people to their death. False Christs have never gone away. They still abound. I just do a Google search on it. I looked it up just this morning, and I, just in the so- short search, I found 26 people in the modern times that have claimed to be the Messiah. And listen to this. They all have followers. Some of them hundreds, some of them thousands. It's incredible. So Jesus tells them, don't be deceived. He actually tells them multiple times, don't be deceived throughout this whole Olivet Discourse. And that's certainly a theme of many of the epistles in Paul's writings, aren't there? Don't be deceived. Why? Why do we need to hear that? Why did the Apostle Paul write about not being deceived? Why did James write about not being deceived to Christians, to believers? Because we have a natural tendency toward being deceived by others and against self-deception. We can deceive our own selves sometimes. And so the goal of these repeated, these warnings that he's given, he's trying to equip the disciples to avoid deceptions. It's essential if they're going to persevere, if they're going to endure to the end, they have to avoid deception. And the leak, there's a link there between false teachers and, and false Christs and straying. Why? Because most of the heresies that come about in, in churches and, and amongst Christians or those who claim to be Christians, those heresies rise up usually through a Christological error, through a misunderstanding or a mis, totally misinterpretation of who Jesus is, of what Jesus has, has done. And certainly heresy is it's a prime way of going astray, leading into apostasy. And so to avoid heresy, it's essential to have a sound Christology in your doctrine, a a sound doctrine of salvation, a a sound understanding of who Jesus is, what He's done, what the Gospel is, and what it means for sinners like me and you. We guard against deception by knowing the Word of God. We guard against self-deception as well. Think of several of the Scriptures. 1 Corinthians 6, 9. Paul says, do not be deceived. He can go on because he lists a whole bunch of things that we can be deceived in and and all these things about unrighteous people, those who are practicing unrighteousness. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, they will not inherit the, the kingdom of God. And so what that tells us is we can't be deceived into believing that somehow that God changed his mind. And, and all of a sudden, that was a sin, but that's not a sin anymore, and God welcomes that. No, He never welcomes sin. He welcomes sinners to Christ. But not to coming up with what we think is righteousness. He alone is the arbiter of righteousness. Don't be deceived. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. In 1 Corinthians 15, do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts or ruins good morals. And how many times have we seen that walked out in the 
the truth. Bad company ruins good morals. Some guy's like, hey, I'm, I'm going to date that girl. Yeah, but you're a Christian. Yeah, but she's not. Yeah, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to win her over. <laughs> bad company corrupts good morals. Good morals don't make bad company better. Don't be deceived. Galatians 6, 7, Paul writes to the Galatian church, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. You can't just, we can't just live however we want. And then expect there to be no bad consequences and fruit that comes out of the way we live as Christians. 2 Timothy 3, 13 Evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. James 1.13, let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. And then desire, when it is conceived, it gives birth to what? To sin. And, when, and sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. And he closes with the warning, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. You can't flirt with sin. You can't play with, with poison. You can't think, just because I drink a little bit of the poison, I'm good. Jesus is calling the disciples to understand People are going to try to lead you astray. Don't be deceived. And so pain is coming. So don't be deceived. He wants them to know that. Difficult seasons will be here in abundance. Don't be deceived. Don't follow after the latest guru. Don't follow after the latest guy who presents himself as having discovered the new keys of success to your happiness. Follow Christ. Follow Jesus. Secondly, pain will come, but don't be afraid. Verse 6, Jesus tells them, and you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. Catastrophic world events that would happen. And as I interpret passages, is this being fulfilled in the first century before A.D. 70? It helps me understand as you look at, at history that, that why would that be a big deal? Because we hear of wars and rumors of wars all the time today, right? I mean, every, every time a war happens, there's fear. There's, there's talk of, oh, are we going to go to war with China? Uh, what's going on in Ukraine? Is Russia going to attack Europe? It's constant. But understand the disciples in this day were living under a very unique period of history, of, of, of something called the Latin phrase Pax Romana. It means the, the Roman peace. And God had a wonderful plan in bringing Christ into the world at just the right time where there was this peace amongst the whole Roman Empire at the time. Now, when I say peace, I, I mean kind of like, like Saddam Hussein had peace in Iraq, right? <laughs> because he had a rule, an iron fist rule, and once he was gone, look what happened. Just w crazy wars everywhere, right? And so the Romans at this time had 
had a, they, were, they were keeping the peace because they had military stations all throughout the empire, and you just didn't mess around with them. And so they, wars and rumors of wars wasn't something that they were used to, but, but after the, res, the, the resurrection of Christ, after his ascension, and during the next 30, 40 years or so, these wars actually picked up. You study history, you see a bunch of wars where a bunch of Jews in particular were killed. Many thousands of Jews were killed in these wars all throughout the Roman Empire area from AD 33 to 70, and certainly that news would make its way back to Jerusalem and cause fear and cause anxiety and, and cause alarm. But Jesus says, see that you're not alarmed. Don't be fearful. It's another way of saying it. Don't be afraid when you hear that. Why? For this must take place. Which, that's a great statement of the sovereignty of God, isn't it? Why must that take place? Because God is on His throne working out His perfect plan all throughout history. In redemptive history, He's doing what He's going to do. And then He says, but the end is not yet. When we read the end there, our minds often go right to the end of the, the, the uh, of days, the end of all time, the end of the world. I, I take that interpretation based on the context of this passage to mean the end being the destroying of the temple. The end of the Jewish age. And so he wants them to not be alarmed. He goes on and speaks of these things that are going to happen that they need to be aware of but yet not be afraid of. He says, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. And we could do a long studies on how all those things were happening. Uh, we, we see the famines, like for instance, even taking place. There was a massive famine that we saw around the, the Mediterranean world at the time in the book of Acts. It speaks of it in Acts 11.28. One of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine all over the world. And this took place in the days of Claudius. Horrible things, frightening things, famine. Have you ever experienced famine? No, wait, you're Americans. You have not. <laughs> I mean, I've gotten hungry. I didn't have breakfast this morning. My stomach's gurgling a little bit. But I think I could live a few days without eating. <laughs> famine is a devastating thing. And it is, it, you know... We've seen it even in this world today. We've seen it all throughout history in the ancient world. And Jesus is pointing these things out and saying, look, these things are happening. And even though they're happening, don't be afraid. Don't let it shake you. Don't be alarmed. Don't let it raise up your anxiety. These are things that have to take place. He says in verse 8 then, and all these Things, these different signs, if you will, are but the beginning of the birth pains. Painful time is ahead. He's letting them know you're going to have some really tough seasons. He uses this illustration of birth pains, which, which is helpful for us because we can understand that. Right? What is a birth pain? It, it's a sign that something is coming, right? You don't know exactly when, but you know when you start feeling it that something's happening. Why is he telling them all this? Ultimately, he wants them to be ready. 
He wants them to be ready. He wants them to be aware. He doesn't want them to run away because the, the tough times are there, because the things are getting worse and worse. He wants them to be ready. And as we read all of Scripture, He wants us to be ready too. Because Christ is returning, you just don't know when. This is the mindset that, that Paul writes when he writes to the First Thessalonians, the church in Thessalonica in 1 Thessalonians 5, when he uses a, the illustration in a similar way, but he uses it speaking specifically of the return of Christ. The Thessalonian church was struggling. They were wondering because they were experiencing incredible difficulties. And as they're experiencing these difficulties, they're wondering a few things. At first, they were wondering what happened to the Christians who already died. We're expecting them to return. We're expecting Christ's return. What happened? Why are our loved ones dying? And Paul spends the end of chapter 4 explaining to them, have hope. Encourage each other with the fact that Jesus, when he comes back, he's coming with those who've gone before. The dead in Christ will rise. You have hope. Hope beyond all other hopes. It's amazing. But they also had another question they were struggling with is, okay, but what about the coming of Christ? Tell us when. Help us understand when it's going to happen because we want to be ready. And he tells them in first, uh, chapter 5, verse 1, Concerning the times and the seasons that you're asking about, you want to know when, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. Why? For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord is going to come like a thief in the night. It's, it's not something you're going you're gonna to know like, all right, you had an appointment set. It's going to come at a time you're, you, you don't expect necessarily. And then he uses the illustration of the labor pains. He says, while people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. These two illustrations, both of them are, are sudden, right? The thief is unexpected. We're going to see Jesus talk about that in his return later in Matthew chapter 24. The thief is unexpected, but the labor is expected, isn't it? John Stott, I think, explained it really well when he said these words. He wrote, so putting the two metaphors together, we may say that Christ's coming will be one, sudden and unexpected, like a thief in the night, and two, sudden and unavoidable, like labor at the end of pregnancy. In the first case, there's going to be no warning, and in the second, no escape. The important point that I think we can take from this and from what Jesus is telling his disciples is this. You don't know the time, but you can make preparations. Right? You can have a plan for a thief, such as a, a, a safe or, a, or an alarm on your house. You can have a plan for your pregnancy. You can have your bags packed. You can have a, you know, the family on call, babysitters ready. Everything's set, but... It comes sudden, it comes unexpected, and it comes unavoidably. So he helps us understand to have a readiness, a watchfulness for the return 
of Christ. Just as Christ is preparing his disciples for a readiness and a watchfulness for what was coming in the judgment, both in the, fall, in the destruction of Jerusalem and in the second coming. Paul also uses the illustration of pains of childbirth in Romans chapter 8, one of the, my favorite chapters in the Bible. He says these words, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. There's this anticipation of things aren't right, and it hurts, and it's painful, and it causes fear. He goes on and says, and not only the creation, but we ourselves even we who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. And that is a promise that we will receive even as we wait in these labor pains. The point is, don't have fear. In verse 9, Jesus tells the disciples, then they'll deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. It's not the first time he told them this. In Matthew 10, 26, he tells them something very similar. He says, so have no fear of them. He's sending them out to, to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom, and he's saying, as you go out, this is what's going to happen. Things are going to be really hard. They're going to hate you. Just because you love me, they're going to hate you. How do we respond to that? Jesus tells them, have no fear of them. For nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops, and do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. There's a regular admonition throughout Scripture to not fear men, to not fear circumstances, to not fear events, even if they come at us cataclysmically. Don't fear. I think when I think of the, the labor pains, I remember my wife's four births that she was blessed to go through. And I remember the look of fear on her face. It was our second one. She had a hard labor with Joe, the first one. The, and the second one, she, she was so nervous, you know. I mean, most of us don't like pain, but my wife really doesn't like pain. <laughs> and I remember Lily, her water broke quick, and things were escalating quick. <laughs> and... We're in the doctor's office, and they're looking, you know, they did the examination, and they're like, oh, we need to get you a room. It's time. And the doctor walks out, and she grabs my arm and looks at me with this desperate look and says, get the, the epidural now. <laughs> Go find them. I don't want to feel this. And we can approach, just the disciples could have, approach very scary situations, very painful situations with fear. And Jesus is telling them, you're going to see all these things. You're going to go through all these things. They're even going to kill you. Don't be afraid. Verse 10, then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. 
Verse 11, many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. Verse 12, and because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. That's quite a statement. People will turn away from the law of God. And in doing that, the love will shrink. The warmth will freeze. The Bible gives us a link between love and fear. Jesus already told them, don't be afraid. And so seeing such things could cause great depths of anxiety and pain. And he says, that's okay, don't be afraid of it. In 1 John 4.18, John writes, there is no fear in love. But perfect love casts out fear. Why? For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. You see, when you fear, or, or, or when you love, it leads to a lessening of fear. When you love people, for instance, you, it, it, it doesn't matter about impressing them or, or, or getting things from them. You just pour your heart out for them and you just love them. It's those who fear, well, what if I don't get love back? You don't know what love is. Jesus is telling them all these things are going to happen. Don't be afraid. It is helpful for us to know that the loss of love is a great danger. We should make direct application in each of our lives with regard to that, thinking of, of Revelation chapter 2, verses 2 through 7, we, we see the problem of, the, of, of this church. In verse 2, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call the, themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. you got really good doctrine. You've got it down pat. You, you know it all. You challenged them. You, you won. And I also know you're enduring patiently. You're bearing up for my name's sake and you've not grown weary. You're enduring. You're pressing on. You're, yes, great church. <coughs> but I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Your love for Christ, your love for God, that used to burn with a depth of intensity and passion has turned into eh. or perhaps it's turned into a love of winning a theological argument. Jesus tells them, remember therefore from where you've fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I'll come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Wise disciples will watch for doctrinal error. He's instructed them about that already, and us. But wise disciples will also engage in the spiritual, uh, the, the, the means of grace and, and the spiritual disciplines of, of worship and prayer and the communion and the reading of, of Scripture and meditating upon it and drinking it in, all of this in order to foster the love for God that leads us then to love us, others. 
Charles Spurgeon wrote these words. Just let me read them and let them sink in a little bit. He said, here is something to tremble at. Because iniquity shall abound, that is worse than pestilence. The love of many shall wax cold, that is worse than persecution. As all the water outside a vessel can do it no hurt unless it enters the vessel itself, so outward persecutions cannot really injure the church of God. But when the mischief oozes into the church and the love of God's people waxes cold, ah, then the ship is in sore distress. Spurgeon goes on and says these words, If the heart grows cold, everything will be coldly done. When love declines, what cold preaching we have. All moonlight lit without heat, polished like marble and as chill. What cold singing we get, pretty music made by pipes and wind, but oh, how little soul song. How little singing in the Holy Ghost, making melody in the heart unto God. And what poor praying. Do you call it praying? What little giving. When the heart is cold, the hands can find nothing in the purse, and Christ's church, and Christ's poor, and the heathen may perish, for we must needs hoard up for ourselves and live to grow rich. Is there anything that goes on as it ought to when love waxes cold? Have you grown cold? Jesus told the disciples, the love of many will grow cold. Don't be afraid. Number three, pain will come, so endurance is necessary. He says in verse 13, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. The end of what? The end of your life. The end. The end of time. The end of Jerusalem and its temple, whatever it might be. Endure. This is a constant command throughout all of Scripture. Again, Jesus told them in chapter 10, brother will deliver brother over to death and the father, his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. How horrible is that? And you're going to be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. This instruction is particularly important for the disciples who are going to become the apostles and who are going to spread out across the globe in many cases to bring the gospel to people on the far reaches of this planet. Most of them will be killed. Most of them in a horrendous way. And Jesus, in loving them and caring for them, is telling them, you're going to face a lot of pain. So you're going to have to persevere. You're going to have to endure. You can't give up. You can't stop. You can't quit. Endure to the end. Show the fruit of your salvation. Now we know, we know from Scripture that God preserves His people. He preserves His flock. Look at John 10, 27. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. 
I give them eternal life, and they'll never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father has given them to me and is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. If you're a Christian, one of the marks of being a Christian, a follower of Christ, a disciple, is you will persevere to the end. You're not going to fall away. God also finishes His work in His people. Philippians 1.6, and I'm sure of this, that He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. We also see that God protects His people until His salvation is fully revealed. 1 Peter 1.3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Will you persevere, Christian? Scripture says Christians will persevere to the end. So here's the question. Are you persevering? Because we have an obligation to persevere in the faith. You say, well, how's that work? You said God will keep me. Exactly. <laughs> but you better keep your eyes on Him. The only way to keep persevering is to keep your eyes on Him. To trust Him. Pain will come. And oftentimes when pain comes, we want to run. Let me go find a new thing. Let me go find, let me go find a preacher that's going to tell me what I want to hear. Let me, go, let me go listen to that sermon that just pets my flesh. In Revelation chapter 2 and 3, I encourage you to read it. John writes these letters to seven different churches, and in every single one he tells them to overcome overcome but I thought Christ has overcome for us yes so overcome it's not about pulling yourself up by your bootstraps it's not about you being strong because when you're weak then he's strong it's about keeping your eyes on Christ and running your race lastly letter four or number four pain will come but the gospel must be proclaimed Verse 14, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Again, I take that end to be the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70, the end of that age. And you say, well, Brian, the gospel wasn't in, like, South America then. And I think we have to understand that the scriptures speak in sense of the whole world, in the, the known world at the time. It's in multiple passages. Colossians 1 is an example where in, in verse 3 he says, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world. 
Does that mean it wasn't in South America at the time? Yeah, it wasn't, but it was in the whole world. It was in their world. Acts 11, we already read that passage. The famine would be over all the world. Ultimately, as we look at this passage, and if, if I am correct in my interpretation of understanding that the, he's speaking to the disciples, preparing them for an incredible cataclysmic event that will shake their world in, in the most intense of ways, they certainly needed an encouragement to go. So when the persecution would come into Jerusalem that sent the disciples flying, in just a short time after this, Christians spread out. What happened? They spread out according to the plan and purpose of God, who used persecution to get the church out, <laughs> get out of Jerusalem, and go to the Gentiles, go to the world, and proclaim the gospel. Pain, suffering, persecution, false prophets, the downgrade of society, natural disasters, all of these things should never prevent the spread of the gospel. And let me add this, will never prevent the spread of the gospel. It never has and it never will. And so these disciples, I believe, were encouraged in this, in hearing and understanding that, yes, it's going to be painful. Yes, it's going to be challenging. Yes, we're going to die, but the gospel of the kingdom is advancing, and the promise of Christ, and again, remember what Jesus is, where we're at in, in the time frame here, he's about to go to the cross, in just a few days, he's going to the cross, he will suffer, and he will die, and we know he won't stay dead, will he? On the third day, he's going to rise from the dead, showing his power, showing who he is, that he has power over sin and death and Satan and hell, that he is the Messiah. He is who he said he is. He is God in the flesh. And he's going to spend 40 days with these guys, teaching them all the things about himself from the Old Testament, instructing them, and then he's going to send them out to the world. What an encouragement to know that the gospel will not be stopped, that the gospel will advance, that the gospel, notice it's the, it's the sharing. It doesn't mean every single person you share with is going to come to Christ. But every single person that God has chosen to come to him that you share with will come to Christ. And so the odds are pretty good. <laughs> so share the gospel, proclaim the gospel, don't be afraid. The gospel must be proclaimed. And as we study not only this passage, this text, but the others that are coming into it, as we study all of it, all the things that have to do with eschatology and such, let's be careful not to get so caught up in, in, in the details of things that people have been arguing about for centuries. Are they unimportant? No, they're very important. I'm not saying they're unimportant. But in the end, every Orthodox Christian has a mandate to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, to proclaim it. And so as we do so, let our eschatology be, be driven by, by hope, by the hope of the gospel that we proclaim. This is a hope that we must share with the world. 
We look around. There's something terribly wrong with the world, isn't there? It's, it's filled with sadness. It's cursed by sin. Romans 8, it's groaning. Creation's groaning. We're groaning as people. We want this final redemption. We long for the return of Christ. We long for the, the final consummation. We say with the psalmist, how long, O Lord? Because it's painful. But as we look at the gospel, as we look at even eschatological issues, let me borrow a phrase from Tolkien. We see that all of those sad things, because of Christ, will come untrue. The curse is going to be rolled back one day. The world is going to be changed. And that's actually the whole point. That's the whole point of eschatology. I like what what Michael Kruger writes. He wrote these words. Eschatology isn't so much about millennial positions or the structure of revelation. It's primarily about the problem of evil and how that problem will be solved. Eschatology is about how one deals with the sad things in this world. In this sense, everyone has an eschatology. The believer, the atheist, the agnostic, the Hindu, everyone has to give account for how evil is going to be dealt with. And so the question isn't whether people have an eschatology, but whether it's a compelling and coherent eschatology. And the Christian worldview has the only compelling and coherent eschatology. It's the only worldview that can actually explain why the world is the way it is. How do we explain that worldview, people? Creation, fall, the fall. It provides a definition of evil, right? A violation of God's law. It gives real hope for the future. God is going to destroy all sin, all death, and He's going to set everything right. So we have to be careful that when we look at these and other passages even, that we don't just reserve them for theologians or for scholars, that it's, that it, that it's something for all of us as Christians, for every single one of us, for every single person, because we all inhabit this, this dark, evil world, and no message is more important or relevant to a dark world than the news concerning how that world will one day be changed, and it's by the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's more important than ever before. You say, when is Christ returning? I don't know, but I know it's closer than yesterday. What do we do in the meantime? We get to work. We get to work. Doing what? Proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. To a needy world, to one another, We evidence it. We evidence the fact that it's transformed our own hearts by the way we live, by the way we love. Let me invite the team to come up here as we prepare then to respond to this gospel in the communion. Let me pray. Father, as you have been so kind to us to give us your word. We thank you for this passage that's ahead of, that's behind us now, and even that, those that is, is ahead. Lord, I thank you for 
Jesus' kindness to his disciples. I thank you for his kindness to us. I thank you for the warnings. I thank you for the preparation, Lord. I thank you for these things that, yes, are difficult to understand, but things that we can be encouraged in, in knowing, Lord, that things aren't right, but yet you are here and with us. Your Holy Spirit has not left us. You have not abandoned us as orphans. You didn't abandon the disciples. You did an amazing, incredible thing back in their time, and you're continuing to do your work. You're continuing to advance your mission. And I pray, O oh God, that even in the midst of our lives and our day and age, that whenever we experience the pain of this, of this world of sin and death, that we wouldn't be deceived, that we wouldn't follow after false Christ, that we wouldn't be afraid when we see things all throughout the world that trouble us, that we would be bold and confident in you, that we would endure to the end, that we would be patient and persevere, and that we would be proclaimers of the best news that has ever existed in history of man. We thank you, Lord, for the work of Jesus and the person of Jesus, and we pray now as we come to celebrate that work, through remembering you, your death, your suffering. As we eat the bread, God, as we crush it in our teeth, would we remember that you crushed your son? Father, as we drink the cup and look upon its redness, that we would remember the blood that was shed for the remission of our sins. Lord, I pray that you would guard our hearts you would keep us in a mind, an attitude of worship as we sing of your blessed assurance because of Jesus. Do your work among us now and receive all the glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we're going to sing this song, Blessed Assurance. Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. And as we come, I want to invite you to, to come and receive of, of the elements that are up here in the baskets at the front. This is for Christians. If you're a believer in Christ and you, you have put your faith and trust in him and you're trusting him alone, this meal is for you. We welcome you. If you're not a Christian, thank you for being here. We're great. You're so glad you're here, but we want you to become a Christian the greatest gift you could receive today. I call upon you to trust Him, turn from your sin, and turn to Him in salvation. We could talk to you more about that. Pastor David's on the left side. I'll be here on the right. We'll pray with you. We'll talk with you. But come as we sing. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine.